Hey, everybody, this is Randy Shandabill, and you're listening to This Golden State. There are already seven candidates running to replace Jerry Brown as the next governor of California. Seven candidates, and the election is still more than a year and a half away. All of them are men, all except one, former state school superintendent Delane Easton, and that's who we're talking to today. Budgets are statements of values, and it's time we elect a woman governor in part because the budget of California has been so cockamamie. You'd have to consider Easton a long shot. She's up against much better known candidates stocked with much more campaign money, including Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, former Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa, State Treasurer John Chung, like Easton, they're all Democrats, and Republican venture capitalist John Cox. Also, current L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti and billionaire environmentalist Tom Steyer may run as Democrats, and the Republican Mayor of San Diego, Kevin Faulkner, he may run too. Now that's a lot of testosterone. And I just reached a point where something kind of snapped in me. Easton is 69, and you can tell she's been out of office for a while. A lot of her references are to people most Californians under 40 have probably never heard of, people like Pete Wilson and Phil Angelides. But her passion for better schools still burns hot. She's highly critical of Jerry Brown on schools. We shouldn't be balancing the budget on the back of the kids. The children should not have been the place we went for the piggy bank money. Even more critical of President Trump. Just a thug when it comes. He's not a debater. He's just, you know... You you just call him a thug. Yes. I think that's a good word for him. We talked with her last week. Delane Easton, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Randy. Great to be with you. Why don't we address the elephant in the room right away. You face long odds, right? I think that's fair, but I've always faced long odds. So um, I was never expected to win any of the races I ran for. I ran for Union City City Council and there were three incumbents running and everybody was like, you can't possibly win that. And then I ran for the assembly and I replaced Alistair McAllister, who was the most conservative Democrat in the legislature. And It was predicted that the big money would be rolled in against me, and it was, and I still won. And then I was the first and still the only woman to be the California Superintendent of Public Instruction. Well, let's get into some of the hurdles you'll have to cross. You don't have the name ID of Gavin Newsom or Antonio Villaraigosa. You haven't raised as much money as they have. You haven't raised as much money as State Treasurer John Chung. And so far, the only Republican candidate, venture capitalist John Cox, will... He's very wealthy, so they all have built-in advantages, don't they? Well, at the time they do. I think as time goes on, we're going to see better and better opportunities for us to reach out to people. When I was elected in 98, my treasurer called and said, you know, I should be charging you twice and I'm charging Phil Angelitis because he's raised more than twice as much money, but you have more than twice as many donors. So you get a lot of small checks. I have to work harder for you. And that's what I think is going to happen here is what's happened in the past. Lots of regular people will step up and get on my side. And that's what's happening. I've only been in the race for a few weeks. So the other uh, gentlemen have all been in a much longer period of time. Well, you do have one potential advantage, at least I think it's a potential advantage. You're the only female in the race. 
Historically, it's been a disadvantage, but I think in this particular election, it could very well be an advantage because of what happened with the national election. But also because, you know, more and more people are becoming aware that there are some serious problems in the state budget, and the same old, same old is not going to really help us to do what we need to do to make California live up to its wonderful Golden State reputation. We've dropped near the bottom in per-pupil spending, and, and there's a real hunger out there for somebody to talk about the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is education. I promise we'll talk about education in just a minute, but uh, for just a second, let's focus on gender. California is one of the most progressive states in the country, but it's never elected a female governor. Why do you think that is? Well, the research shows the bigger the state, the harder it is for a woman to be elected to a constitutional office. So the state of California elects eight constitutional officers every four years, and the total number that have ever been elected in the state of California is eight. We've never had more than two at any one time. Right now, we only have one. But what's the, what's the explanation? Why do you think well, that is? The bigger the city, the harder it is to elect a woman mayor. So we have only one of the top 10 cities that has a woman mayor, and that's Oakland. And if you look, Diane Feinstein became mayor of San Francisco only after Moscone was assassinated. She had run for mayor and lost. And so the bigger the research shows, the bigger the platform, the harder it is for women to be visible. But in California last year, Hillary Clinton easily defeated uh, Donald Trump by almost a two-to-one margin. And uh, she beat Bernie Sanders in the primary, too. And for the past 25 years, California has had nothing but female senators, Feinstein, Boxer, and now Kamala Harris. So it's not like Californians dislike women. They're voting for them. They just haven't voted for a female governor. Well, we haven't had that many women that have run. Only two women have run for governor, and, and Kathleen Brown and then Meg Whitman. So the truth And Diane Feinstein. Oh, and Diane, you're right, three. At the end of the day, I will just say I really believe that it's time for California to elect more women mayors, more women to the boards of supervisors. We have a bunch of boards that don't have any women on them. So it's harder for women, but I do believe this is a time because there is a hunger for people to, to be more honest with the public and to do the things that come first. Budgets are statements of values. If you look at the budget of a family, you can see that when times are tough, they don't usually say, well, we're going to cut everything across the board. They try to keep all the cuts away from their children. With my parents, when my dad went on strike, they didn't cut our health care. They didn't cut our dental care. They didn't, you know, stop taking us to the library and doing things for us. And when the time came for me to go to college, my parents needed a new car. They wanted a new couch. They wanted to go on vacation. They didn't do any of that. They sent their daughter to college. Budgets are statements of values. And it's time we elect a woman governor in part because the budget of California has been so cockamamie in support of prisons over higher ed, for example. You say that it's time is overdue. We're, we're overdue for a female governor in California. Aside from the obvious, overwhelming, symbolic power of electing a woman to be governor of California, what would be different? Well, the research shows that when you get a, major, a larger number of women in the legislature and or leadership, that there's more emphasis on education, on families, on seniors, and on health care. And those are the very areas that California really needs to focus on in a big way. That and infrastructure. California has been underinvested in some key areas while we've been out, you know, doing some really sexy things that don't exactly give us the same return on investment as the more basic important things like education and roads and, and taking care of affordable housing issues in the state of California. One more question on gender, if you don't mind. You were the first and so far only state superintendent of schools, which seems really odd to me because an overwhelming majority of school teachers are female. 
especially in elementary and middle schools, we have a profession dominated by women, but a state school system historically run by men. Yes. Well, I mean, that's if you look across the country, you'll see that there is a majority of superintendents, some states call them commissioners, that happen to be men. I think there are more women than there at various times than, than uh, for the top jobs, the governor's jobs. We have very few women who have ever been governor of any state, but the bigger the state, the less likely. You know, Texas had Ann Richards for one term, four years. And uh, we haven't had seen a woman be the governor of New York yet. We have some well, other... What's, what's ironic is that I, I, I looked it up. It's mainly the conservative states that have had female... Go- Arizona has had four female governors. Texas has had two. Uh, Kansas has had a couple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, well, I mean, I do think that... You know, times do change, but I think we are about to go through a sea change here in this country. I do believe, despite Hillary's loss, that you're going to see a lot more women stepping up in the coming elections. Uh, Back to the campaign for one more minute. There's another potential problem that you have, at least on the Democratic side. Gavin Newsom and John Chung are still state office holders. They're in the news. You, on the other hand, have been out of office for 14 years, and I would imagine it's a little bit harder for you to make news. Yes, I think it is. However, one of the things that I have is that I have a voice. And when I do get an opportunity to speak, people hear what I have to say and they're thrilled. And I've had a number of people who had endorsed one or the other candidates and they've decided to change their endorsement and come to my side. People that have been around more than, you know, a little longer do remember what a force I was on on behalf of education. But many, many people know that I've also been very active and, and instrumental in cleaning up old landfills and dealing with recycling issues that nobody wanted to touch. And I was very active in transportation areas. So I think there are people that remember me from then. And then some of the new, newer people, the millennials, are just on fire to volunteer on my campaign. When I get a chance to speak to them, they immediately join up. Well, your being out of office for 14 years brings up another question. Why now? Why, after being out of office for 14 years, are you getting back in an attempt at elected office now? Is there something happening now in government? Or perhaps a better question, is there something not happening in state government? What's going on? It's something not happening. When I left, I went back and ran the National Institute for School Leadership in Washington, D.C. Then I was a Mills College professor. But I kept looking at Sacramento and kept seeing the cut, cut, cut that was in the mentality of Sacramento. They took a billion dollars out of child development and preschool when the economy got bad. And that money has not been fully restored. And Jerry Brown is deferring restoring the 230-something million he was going to give them back this year. Why? He says, well, we have to be cautious. We have to be financially cautious. So what do we say to the four-year-old? You should defer growing up for a year? The steepest curve of development is zero to five. The present governor has very good marks when it comes to balancing the budget. But he did it in a foolish way in some cases. He vetoed a bill to do mandatory kindergarten. Fifteen states, most of whom perform, outperform California, have mandatory kindergarten. Why doesn't California have mandatory kindergarten? We have the largest class size in America. We have the largest 
set of challenges that any state has because one out of four of our children is poor. It used to be one out of 10. And one out of the largest percentage, largest number of our children are English learners of any state in the union. So California, which used to be in the top 10, has more reason to be in the top 10 now than ever before, but we're not. We're in the bottom 10 in the 50 states. And I just reached a point where something kind of snapped in me. And I said, you know, people talk about economic development. The best economic development pro- program and is a, is a great education. That's why the Silicon Valley came to California. People talk about, you know, uh, getting rid of crime. Well, the best crime prevention program is education. The kids that are in jail are the ones, the incarcerated youth, are reading at the third grade level, and they tend to be kids that got lousy educations. The best program for welfare reform would be education. The poorest people tend to be the people with the fewest educational opportunities. Easton says one way to get more money to the schools is to reduce the local school bond approval threshold from a two-thirds vote to a 55% vote. Right now, local districts can get money for building schools with just 55%, but it still takes a two-thirds vote to staff those schools. The fact is that the making it easier to build the buildings than to staff them is cockamamie. I always tell people if you could send your kid to a beautiful school with a lousy teacher or have your child taught by Socrates sitting on the rock, you should go with Socrates and the rock. So you sound very critical of Jerry Brown. I'm critical to Jerry on one topic, and that is education. He has my full support when it comes to being uh, a great environmental governor. I think he's done a lot of good work in that area. He certainly balanced the budget. We praise him for that. But we shouldn't be balancing the budget on the back of the kids. Budgets are statements of values. The children should not have been the place we went for the piggy bank money. Well, I hope you're not counting on his endorsement. (laughs) No, I don't. I'm not, actually. You know, it seems like this issue has been talked about forever, comparing the state's commitment to building prisons to the state's expenditures on schools. I remember that argument decades ago, and we still have that argument. Well, in uh, 50 years, we built one UC campus, two community college campuses, and three CSUs for a total of six colleges on the public sector. We built 22 prisons in that same period of time. So they don't even ask us anymore about prisons. They still make us vote to build the schools and vote to build the institutions of higher education. They put that on the ballot. But they stopped asking the voters. Think about it, Randy. You haven't voted on a prison bond in 20 years, but they're still building prisons. If budgets are statements of values, they've essentially said prisons are more important than schools. Does more money necessarily mean better schools, better teachers? You know, you have to spend it right. But money is necessary. It's not sufficient to have great schools. Necessary, but not sufficient. You have to have enough money. And if you look around the state right now, there are too many school districts that, that have these just amazingly large class sizes where there aren't even enough desks to go around. The last I've been in schools where the last kids in sit at a stool on the back because they didn't get there in time to get one of the desks. So I think a lot of Californians on funding for schools, they might be very frustrated to hear that schools still need more money because Four years ago, Californians passed Proposition 30, higher taxes on upper-income earners with most of the revenue at least targeted for public schools and colleges. Then just a few months ago, Californians passed Proposition 55, which extends Proposition 30. So are you saying that those taxes aren't, aren't doing the trick? They're necessary, but not sufficient. We don't, they haven't done the trick because we have so little money coming in at the local level and, and over time, what we've done 
is essentially just cut and cut and cut and cut. So that even though people say, well, we're so much better than we were, that's true. We're no longer 50th in per people spending. But depending on whose numbers you use, California is 46th or 41st or the 33rd in terms of the investment that's going into our schools. But again, we're living in the most expensive state in the union. The cost of living here is higher. And so it makes sense that we would be spending more than the national average, not less. And we are spending less than the national average. I can't tell you how many parents I've heard tell me that they think the problem isn't necessarily the money for the schools themselves, but the teachers' unions, that in the eyes of many, they seem to be more concerned with protecting teachers than they are with educating children. You know, I'm, I'm on the side of the California teachers when the teachers' unions are on the side of the kids. There are a few times that they you know, put the grown-ups above the kids. So the CTA once sponsored a bill that said teachers didn't have to do lesson plans, which I opposed vigorously as state superintendent. And so when the teachers are on the side of the kids, I'm with them. I think people need to understand that the cost of living is so high that, if anything, when you say, well, the teachers are well-paid, yes, they are. Average pay is high in California. But because the cost of living is so high, that's why we have a huge teacher shortage. These people are the most doing the most important work in America, and yet we tend to not give them the resources that they need. And yes, they get a decent salary, but the, the truth be known, I know many teachers that are into their own pockets to the tune of thousands of dollars a year. I think the vast majority of Californians would agree with you that teachers deserve better pay. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Tenure. I recall when my, when my kids were in school, most of their teachers were great. They had a few stinkers, and we weren't the only ones who thought that. And when you mentioned it to the principal or a counselor, they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, we know we get a lot of complaints, there's nothing we can do. They're tenured. You know, it probably is too difficult to fire teachers in some districts. Having said that, there are districts that do fire teachers. Yes, they think it's too expensive. Yes, they think it's too hard. But the, if you're really a good leader, you, you weed out the poor teachers from the start. And then later on, you have the courage and the backbone to go after the ones that are not able to do things. So if you, if you really do have the gumption, you can get rid of them. But I'm more concerned about the number of school districts. Like Colton tells me, they are so short of substitutes that when a teacher's out sick, let's say the sixth grade teacher's out sick, they put five kids in fifth grade, five kids in fourth grade, five kids in third grade, five kids in second grade, five kids in first grade, and they call it an independent study day. This is wrong. So we have a shortage of teachers in many areas, including mathematics and science, as well as special education. And if anything, we should be more focused on the short supply than on, on the whining about the ones that aren't getting the job done. You're obviously very, very passionate about improving our schools. But in the current political climate, most Californians seem preoccupied with other topics right now, mainly uh, the perceived threats from President Trump, threats to the environment, to immigrants, to women. Is there a danger that you will be pigeonholed as the education candidate when education isn't the dominant issue? Well, I'm going to try to make it the dominant issue. Having said that, my whole life I have fought for what was right, not just for children and education, but for the environment. I wrote the biggest landfill cleanup bill in the history of the state. We have all these toxic dump sites that were just 
wallowing in, in uh, chemicals, and we had migrating methane going off of some of them. I wrote the big landfill cleanup bill. I did a lot of work in transportation. I, I really believe there's a lot of unfinished business in California. So I'm really a believer that it's time for Californians to come together and begin thinking in the long run. We've, been, we've had too much short-term thinking. Ironically, the state of California requires every city and every county to have a long-range plan. California's got long-range plans. We have a water plan. It was done under Governor Brown. That would be Pat Brown. The year was 1957. So we're standing, you know, on the shoulders of giants, but we're, in fact, pretty feckless when it comes to really envisioning a future for the children and grandchildren that are on the planet right now who really deserve a, a California leadership. Yes, that will stand up to Trump, but we'll also take care of business at home. With regard to President Trump, his immigration policies and his talk about withholding money uh, to sanctuary cities and potentially California as a sanctuary state. What would you as governor do about that? I would go toe-to-toe with the president on this topic. Uh, Mr. Trump, two out of his three wives were immigrants. I mean, there are lots of uh, good people in this country who happen to be immigrants, and California will not stand for it because we have our neighbors and our friends who are here in this country who do come from other countries and who deserve our respect and, and fair treatment. Kind of a dilemma on that issue. The more the governor and state legislature fight Trump, the more likely it is that he cuts funding. And I would presume that that would continue if you were there two years from now. So how do you balance the fighting Trump with the possibility that it might cost federal funding? Well, we only get 79 cents back on every dollar we send to Washington, D.C., so we've already been cut by the government in truth. I, I do think he will have, he will see us go toe-to-toe with him, whoever the attorney general is and whoever the governor is. We will, in fact, stand up for California against arbitrary cuts. He's got no right to take away the rights of the people that live in California to the taxes that they pay. You know, you raise an interesting issue that money he's talking about withholding. It's not like that would be a gift. It came from California in the first place. As you mentioned, California is a donor state. We pay in more than we get. And so is it fair to withhold money you give to the federal government in the first place because you disagree with the state's policies? Well, you know, we provide for the common defense. We promote the general welfare. We ensure these blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, so it says in the preamble. So some of the money goes for things like defense, which may not, in fact, bring jobs back to California. And at the end of the day, I think California is being shortchanged, and I wish that there was more attention paid to returning our full investment to us. Having said that, uh, to the extent that we are giving it to the defense of the nation and to some other causes, I have some, I take some comfort in it. I really do worry, though, about him taking away specific things from our state in the future because he's, he's that kind of, uh, how to say, impulsive person who just smacks somebody across the face when he doesn't like what they said. Uh, thin-skinned, yeah. vindictive. Yeah. Polls show that uh, Jerry Brown is more popular now than ever. He's popular, articulate, and the state's in relatively good fiscal shape. Still, the state's roads, bridges, and of course dams are not in good shape. I think no one would say that the state's infrastructure deserves an A or perhaps even a B grade. So what will the next governor have to do that Jerry Brown isn't doing to restore the state's infrastructure? I think the next governor really does have to put a very high 
priority on infrastructure. We have a lot of infrastructure that was built in the 40s and 50s and 60s by that greatest generation that deserves our attention now. When you drive by, you can see the year it was built, and a lot of these bridges, 1930, 1931, 1932, 1933, you know, that's a long time ago. If we start tomorrow, we'd still be lucky to be replacing some of them 100 years after they were built. So clearly, at some point, to improve the state's infrastructure, California is going to need at least some federal help. But as we were just talking about, the governor and the state legislature are taking actions that the current president doesn't like, and he's threatening to withhold federal dollars. So that creates another predicament on the infrastructure of the state as well. Well, we have to do more for ourselves, frankly. I mean, I actually think that um, we have to have a conversation about what we're going to do to get the resources to fix some of these uh, uh, roads and bridges and dams. So where does the money come from and what's cut? Well, I mean, I think we have to figure out a way to associate usage with the cost of doing business. So probably we ought to increase some resources like increase gas taxes. And I know it's very unpopular, but if you look at what our parents' generation paid when they were building that freeway system, it was, you know, a much higher percentage of the gas. There's another um, suggestion, though, that because of the electric cars and different things, that we ought to be looking at a mileage factor. And that's another option we have to figure out. But um, Another unpopular option. Another unpopular option. But nonetheless, and all the more, you know, maybe the big trucks that use these big roads, you know, they may need to invest more in, in making sure those roads are uh, maintained for their use. Is it possible that as we go into 2018 that the main issue in the governor's race for the state of California will be who could be the strongest in fighting the president of the United States? I, I don't know that that should be the most important issue. I think we, I hope we would all stand up. I think we would all stand up. Bottom line is that we, we could spend our time screaming at the governor, I mean at the president, from the governor's mansion, or we could spend our time focusing on the problems that California has and finding solutions for them. I'd much rather see us not get into a screaming match with the president who, you know, is just a thug when it comes. He's not a debater. When somebody finds something out he's done that's wrong, he wants to know how they found it out. He's more concerned about that his phone was tapped than that the information that was presented was actually accurate. You know, oh, look, a pony. He wants you to get distracted looking at the underlying issue of who leaked this information rather than that the information is damning. You, you just call them a thug. Yes. I think that's a good word for him. I think he has been a, a person who tries to intimidate people, and that's what thugs do. To counteract Trump's attempts to get rid of Obamacare, Gavin Newsom is proposing a form of uh, universal health care, he says, based on the program he signed into law when he was mayor of San Francisco. Is he onto something there? Is there something the state can do to make sure Californians don't lose their insurance under the Republican replacement to Obamacare? Absolutely. It's not a crazy idea. It's a perfectly relevant conversation to have. If the federal government kicks millions of people in California off of uh, health insurance, California ought to step up and find a way to give them insurance. Well, so far we've talked about more money for schools, more money for infrastructure, and more money for insurance. That sounds like a lot of taxes that Californians aren't going to like, unless you're cutting something else. Well, I mean, I do think some of the 
some of this can be done by allowing, as I said, locals to play a role in some of this discussion. The half-cent sales taxes have put over $20 billion into the roads of California, and that's been locally generated money because the state wouldn't do it. So there is an opportunity for us to allow more local money to flow into schools as well as into the roads. And there is an opportunity for us, though, to have an adult conversation about uh, ways that we could, in fact, raise more revenue. So why would you make a better governor than Gavin Newsom, Antonio Villaraigosa, or John Chung? I'll put my record up against any of them in terms of what I've been able to do uh, locally and at the assembly and subsequently as superintendent of public instruction. I was able to reduce class size, kindergarten through third grade, to less than 20 kids in a classroom. Where did I get the money? I sued Pete Wilson, and I won. I have a brass backbone. When it comes to really getting things done, I have gotten more done that affected more people in this state than any of the other candidates. We've mentioned that you've been out of office for, for 14 years, and we've also mentioned that they're still in office and have that advantage of making news. What have you been doing for the past 14 years? Well, and, and, and why does that make you better suited for governor than the people who are currently holding office? Well, I went back to the National Institute for School Leadership, and I was its first executive director. So um, that was very interesting, but I missed my California, and so I didn't like flying all over the country. So I came back, and I taught at Mills College. Um, during that time, though, I have served on many, many boards and commissions that help children. I'm agile, and I'm sharp, and I know what the real issues are as they relate to the future of this state. And I have never stopped being interested in California and in its future. So uh, the fact that I'm not a career politician doesn't mean that I'm not uh, up to date. You, you know, whenever I hear someone point out that they're not a career politician, it's usually a wealthy Republican or going back a few decades, a Reform Party candidate with little experience making that claim. Carly Fiorina, Meg Whitman, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Donald Trump. Uh, Ross Perot. Are you saying people like that are, by definition, more qualified than Jerry Brown, Gavin Newsom, Antonio Villaraigosa, and John Chung because they're not career politicians? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm none of those people did anything in public sector work to speak of. Well, I mean, well, well, I, well, well who, who's come in from outside of government who, who, who hasn't been a career politician that you could point to recently that's done great work? Well, I have been done public policy, though. I did it at the city council level. I served, I represented the city of Union City on a number of county boards, as well as uh, having been in the legislature, as well as having been the state superintendent. So I know both public and private sector. I'm not one or the other. I'm both. And the reality is that I've had uh, a career in politics, and I'm very proud of my accomplishments in that area, but I've also had other careers in the public sector and in the nonprofit sector and in the private sector. So for me, I think it does help if you have a variety of different life experiences, not just all or nothing. And uh, I think the, the all or nothing people uh, can both have shortcomings because they don't know enough about the other part of the world. But aside from education, what do you feel your main passions will be if elected as governor? What, what issues would you first try to tackle? Well, certainly affordable housing. I honestly believe we have a crisis in California where our police officers and firefighters and teachers and secretaries and electricians are often having to commute 
hours back and forth to their place of work. We have got to focus on, on creating more affordable housing around our transportation hubs so that we don't have these long, long commutes. Infrastructure is clearly important to me. I love the environment. I've been, I'm a life member of the Sierra Club. I, I've been an advocate for uh, our parks as well as our um, beautiful environment, and I believe very strongly that we have a lot of work to do to, to clean up our old landfills more and to do more to clean up our water and reuse our water in effective ways. I think it's an unfortunate reality that most voters in California, most voters around the country, don't pay as much attention to campaign issues as I think the people running would like them to pay attention to. So most candidates resort to a shorthand, a bumper sticker, if you will. Do you have kind of a shorthand message to what you will be all about? When I ran for the legislature in 1986, my slogan was, because we can do better. And I think if there is a slogan, it is, we can do better in California. We've done better in the past than we're doing now, and it needs somebody with a vision. Well, Delaine Easton, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Randy. My pleasure. You can subscribe to This Golden State on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and find us on San Francisco Magazine's website as well. If you like us, spread the word. Any comments or ideas, shoot me an email to shandabel at shandabel.com. That's S-H-A-N-D-O-B-I-L. Thanks for listening.